Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. New Spring Church, how are we this morning? Fantastic. It's so good to be down in your beautiful part of the world once again. So thank you so much, Dave, for the invitation to come and spend some time with you beautiful people. Uh, it's always a pleasure and always a privilege. I really um, love the outdoor thing that you've got going on here. It's a very refreshing way of doing church and very New Testament. right? So I figure that the Bible does tell us that the gospel is good news to all creation. So I kind of like the idea of announcing that Jesus is alive and Jesus is Lord to the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees, as well as to the neighbors. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Uh, now, they say that the secret to a great sermon is to have a good introduction, a good ending, and to keep the two as close together as possible. So I'm going to endeavor to do that today, particularly for the benefit of those who are on the benches. Um, but feel free to shift around and follow the shade if you need to, uh, unless you want to get a suntan, then you're welcome to move into the sun and uh, maximize uh, the outdoor exposure. But um, I'm really loving this uh, series that you're in at the moment, um, this uh, series based on Acts and, uh, of course, built around this idea or this concept of the Fifth Act Church. Uh, it's a really profound and important idea that as uh, the church in every time and place, we have to improvise our way through our own context and our own uh, setting, our own circumstance in a way that's kind of faithful to uh, the plot line and the storyline and the trajectory of the redemptive dealing of God in human history, which of course is recorded for us in the pages of Scripture. And then to live out the reality of the gospel and the reality of the goodness of God in our lives in a way that is honoring and faithful to all those who have gone before us, but that is sensitive and responsive to the context in which we find ourselves. I love that idea. And it's, it's a really helpful way of thinking about the Bible because in a lot of ways, the Bible is, is like the, the scrolling yellow text at the start of every Star Wars movie. right? Those of you who are Star Wars fans, you know what I'm talking about. At the beginning of every Star Wars film, there's a, a scrolling set of text that takes about 60 seconds to run through. And what it does is it orientates you to the story. And it tells you what has happened so far and what's about to happen and who the key characters are in the story and where you are about to step into the story. And so that's kind of like what the Bible does for us. And it's certainly what the book of Acts does for us. And so I, I love the book of Acts. It's a fantastic book. It's obviously a history book. Uh, more particularly, it's the history of the early church, the history of the very first followers of Jesus. And uh, it's not a comprehensive history. It's not an exhaustive history. Uh, it's more like a highlight reel of all the most significant and defining moments that took place in the lives of those first century followers of Jesus. But really the, the, the true value of the book of Acts is that it is not only history, but it is our heritage. And there's a difference between history and heritage. right? Like if, if you, if you uh, take time to study the royal family, and you learn all about the royal family and the history of the royal family. But you've discovered somewhere along the way that you are in fact a member of the royal family. Like you are descendant from the royal family. Like there's royal blood in your veins. Then suddenly all of that history becomes your heritage, becomes your birthright. And so that's what we have in the book of Acts. We have not only our history as the church, we have our heritage as the church. This is our birthright. And that is important because it should shape our expectation 
The book of Acts should not only inform us about our past, it should inspire us in our present and shape our expectation of the future. Now, I kind of must just qualify that by saying, um, because it is history, large parts of the book of Acts are, are, prescript, uh, are descriptive, not prescriptive, in the sense that they are there to tell us exactly what happened. They are not there to tell us exactly what should happen. So, for instance, you know, Peter's out one day and uh, he's walking through the streets of Jerusalem and he's on his way to the temple. And the Bible says that as his shadow fell on people who were sick, lying by the side of the road, that they were healed. Like, wow, <laughs> that's pretty impressive. Okay. But Peter did not start a school of shadow healing. Like there were no books and conferences on shadow healing, right? It, it happened once, wonderful, praise God, but it didn't happen again. And nor are we to expect that it should happen again. Now it could happen again, but the book of Acts is not telling us that every time the shadow of an apostle falls on a sick person that they're going to get healed, right? It is descriptive, not prescriptive. So uh, it does shape our expectation and we can and should expect God to move in sovereign, supernatural, powerful ways. But... We are not prescriptive about when God moves and how God moves and through whom God chooses to move and on whose behalf God chooses to move. That is entirely up to the sovereign will of God. All right. But it should shape our expectations. And so what I want to do today is I want to just share um, some things that I see in the pages of the story in Acts that are certainly not only part of our history, but part of our heritage that should shape our expectations as the church in the 21st century, because these three things are as much a part of our life and reality as the community of faith as they were part of the community of faith in the first century. And so if you are taking notes, jot these down, as I always encourage people to do, because it'll help you kind of get it into your head and into your heart and kind of be able to go back and visit again later. But the first of the three is this. What I see in the book of Acts when I open up the pages and I immerse myself in the story is I see real people. I see real people. Now, I mean that in the, in, in the most literal sense that these are actually characters of history. These are not actors in a play. These are not uh, fictional characters in a novel. These are real people with real lives and real families and real pains and real sorrows and real griefs. And, 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 and they are historical figures with, with names like Luke and Paul and Peter and Dorcas and Lydia. And there's no reason at all that we should doubt their historicity. In fact, if you know anything about documents of antiquity, you will know that the New Testament actually stacks up incredibly well against other documents of antiquity from the same period. And that the history of the New Testament corresponds very closely to the secular history uh, and the sources that we have in documents of antiquity. So there is no reason whatsoever to doubt the historicity of these people in the book of Acts. They are real people. But more than that, when I say they are real people, I mean they are normal people. They are people just like you and just like me. They are people with real fears and real doubts and real dreams and real aspirations and real limitations. They are normal, ordinary, everyday people just like you and just like me. And the reason why I reckon it's so important for us to see that is because when you read the book of Acts, it kind of reads like a Bruce Willis film. Right? It's like high impact, high intensity, high drama, high action. And with every kind of turn of the page, there's something dramatic happening. 
healings and miracles and divine interventions. It's, it's pretty spectacular. And when you read it, it plays out really quickly. So if you read it from start to finish, you would think that this whole thing plays out over three or four years. But the reality is the book actually plays out over 30 or 40 years. There's a lot of history in the book of Acts. And in between all those highlight moments, in between all those miracles and those divine interventions and those supernatural acts of God, there was a lot of everyday normal, a lot of ordinary life that still needed to happen. And so sometimes you can be forgiven, you know, if you read the book of Acts of thinking, my gosh, these people were pretty special. Like they were, they were like super powerful. Everywhere they went, miracles were happening and things were, were happening. And, and, and you might think they were so spiritual that they glowed in the dark. But they were just normal people like you and me. And in between all that spectacular divine intervention, very normal, ordinary day, things needed to happen. Babies still needed to be fed and goats still needed to be milked and, and kids needed to be cleaned and educated and, and houses needed to be cleaned and, and water needed to be fetched from the well. There was a lot of everyday normal in the life of the first century church. And it's important for us to see that because if we don't, we are going to have unrealistic expectations about what life in the church ought to be like. And you know what I've, I've come to realize is that very often the disappointments and the hurts and the frustrations that we experience in life are the product of unrealized expectations. But unrealized expectations are often unrealized because they are unrealistic. Unrealistic expectations become unrealized expectations and therein lies our disappointment and our hurt. So if you have unrealistic expectations of life in the local church, you are going to end up frustrated and disappointed and jaded and potentially sidelined. And you could even have your faith shipwrecked over those unrealistic expectations. So when it comes to life in the local church, you know what we should expect? We should expect real people. Real people. And you know what? Real people have doubts. Real people sometimes question whether or not what they believe is actually true. Real people make mistakes. Real people get it wrong. Real people say things they regret. Real people do things they wish they hadn't done. Real people forget their own graduations. <laughs> it happens. And so we should expect real people when it comes to our shared life together as the church, as the faith community. And we should create permission for people to be real. And so you have to ask yourself the question, right, in the context of this gathering, in the context of our shared life together as a church, do I, do I feel the freedom to be real? Can I say what I'm really thinking? Can I? <laughs> well, we got to change that. Can I say what I really feel? Can I, can I share the fears and, and, and the doubts that I, that I wrestle with at night? Can I say what I really hope and dream and aspire for? Can I, can I really acknowledge what I'm struggling with? Can I be real? Because that reality is, is, is such an important aspect of true community and of what God desires the church to really be. So ask yourself that question. I was at, I was at a party a, a while back and uh, a Saturday night gathering, um, just a dinner party with a bunch of people we know. And, 
And uh, there were a couple of teenage girls who were, who were sitting not far from where I was, and they were talking, and I, I was in earshot of their conversation. And one of the girls asked her friend, so are you going to church tomorrow? To which the friend replied, uh, yes, I am. The first girl said, uh, that's fantastic. She said, what are you going as? <laughs> which I thought was a, was a pretty sharp, somewhat cynical kind of tongue-in-cheek statement. But she was, of course, implying that church is a fancy dress. Like, what are you going as? What costume are you going to wear? What are you going to put on? What mask are you going to put over your face? What are you going as? And I thought, mm, I, I understand it was tongue-in-cheek. It was spoken in jest. But there was, a, there was a slight cynicism to what she said. And I thought, how sad that she thought that church is a fancy dress. That when we gather together like this, that we have to put on our best appearances. Now, friends, we should be free to be real. Because you know what I see in the book of Acts? I see that what I like to call the church without any makeup on. Right? Have you ever seen any of those like celebrity comparisons where they, they take an actress or a supermodel and they, they show you a picture of her with her makeup on and her without her makeup on? And sometimes you look at the difference between the two and you think, oh my, is that the same person? <laughs> right? Because with her makeup on, she looks stunning and, and, and beautiful and you can see why she's a supermodel. And then without her makeup, you think, well, that's, that's pretty normal. That's pretty ordinary. And sometimes the contrast is quite striking. Well, what I reckon we have in the book of Acts is the church without any makeup on. Just raw, real, unfiltered, unadulterated, unpolished, just real. What you see on Instagram, when it comes to every church in the world, <laughs> is the church with its makeup on. Right? All the best angles all the best lighting, all the best parts highlighted. Listen, if our churches were half as good as our Instagram feeds make them out to be, we would be changing the world. <laughs> you know what I would love? You know what I'd love to see is some church have the courage one Sunday to post a photo reel of their lowlights. You know what I mean? Show us a photo of the seats that were empty. <laughs> Show us a photo of the people who fell asleep during the sermon. Show us a photo of the funny face that the pastor pulled while he was preaching, right? Show us the babies crying, and that's the real church, right? And I've come to realize there's a big difference between the ideal church and the real church. The ideal church is that beautiful, spotless bride of Christ who, you know, uh, loves faithfully and gives generously and serves willingly and, and always relates, you know, in, in, in unity. Well, well, we all love the ideal church, don't we? The question is, can you love the real church with all her shortcomings and failings and inadequacies and limitations? Can you love the real church? Because that is the church that Jesus loves. The church of right here, right now. The church of who we really are. Not the church of who we think we ought to be. And so if we're going to do life in this 21st century reality... In a way that's faithful to the story of God's redemptive dealing in humanity, I, I think we have to expect real people. Be real people, expect real people, and give one another permission to be real people. That's the first thing. All right, second thing I see when I, I kind of make my way through the book of Acts and I see it from one end to the other, start to finish, is I see real power. Real power. These real people, ordinary, everyday people, just like you and me, have had their lives energized by a very real power the power of God the power of the Holy Spirit 
And uh, Acts 1 verse 8 says, you know, Jesus, just prior to his ascension, talking to his disciples, he says to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And, and that really sums up the entirety of the book. The whole book is about ordinary people empowered by an extraordinary God to go from where they are out into every corner of society to touch every part of the world and to turn it upside down for the kingdom of God. Ordinary people filled with an extraordinary power. And the reason why this power is so necessary and so essential and why we should expect it in the 21st century is because there's a correlation between power and effectiveness. I know there are some theologians who question it, who say, nah, the power of the Holy Spirit's not really necessary anymore because we have the scriptures and the church has been established. And so the power of the Holy Spirit kind of stopped with the death of the last apostle. It's what we call cessationism. I, I struggle with that idea for two reasons. Number one, there's no evidence of that in the Bible. There's no scriptural backing to say that the Holy Spirit should stop moving in power at the end of the first century. But secondly... My logic tells me that if the first century followers of Jesus needed the power of God to fulfill the mission of the church, surely we need it too. Like, who do we think we are that we could fulfill the mission and mandate given to the church in our own strength when the first century church was told, hey, don't you move until you have received power from on high by the Holy Spirit. And there's a correlation between power and effectiveness. And if you don't believe me, next time you need to mow your lawn. Just go out into your front yard and take your lawnmower and before you fire it up or turn it on or pour any petrol in or stick that lithium battery in, just try push your lawnmower around the lawn for a while without it turned on. And you'll very quickly realize <laughs> there's a correlation between power and effectiveness. Right? And, what, and so what power does is power it takes us from being just active to being productive and effective. Because how many of you know you can be active but not productive or effective. You can be really busy, but not achieving much without power, adequate power. And so, so God gives us this power, but, but this power is not just like an energy. It's not electricity. When we talk about the power of God, we're talking about nothing less than his personal presence. It is the presence of God himself in us. And through us, and because we have the personal presence of God in us and through us, we can and should expect an abiding source of wisdom, strength, discernment, knowledge, uh, guidance, because God is in us and with us every step of the way. It's, it's like, let me explain it to you this, this way, like um, the Bible, right? The Bible is, is, is kind of like uh, a map and, and sometimes it's like a compass. Now, if I was to say to you, all right, I want you to make your way from here to the bell tower in Perth, and I gave you a map of Perth, you'd be able to get there pretty easily. Because what a map is, is a detailed description of a particular piece of territory, and you can follow the description of that territory, and you can go wherever you want to go. So if I said, hey, here's a map of the city of Perth, I want you to get from here to the bell tower and you were new to the city of Perth, you could do it really easily, okay? But if I gave you a map of Melbourne and asked you to do the same, you'd be lost, okay? Now, in the absence of a map, the next best thing is a compass. So if I said to you, all right, I want you to get from here to the bell tower 
And to do that, you're going to have to travel. I don't know where we are right now. I'm completely directionless. You're going to have to travel whatever it is, north, west, <laughs> 25 kilometers. And uh, here's your compass. As long as you keep traveling in the right direction, you're ultimately going to get to where you want to go. And you can use the compass to do that. But you are going to have to improvise along the way because you don't have a map. You don't have a detailed description of the territory between here and the city. So you're going to come up against obstacles like main roads and rivers, and you're going to have to make a decision. How am I going to get across? How am I going to cross this river? Do I go left? Do I go right? Where will the nearest bridge be? You're going to have to ask people. You're going to have to interact. You're going to have to use your creativity. You're going to have to be innovative. You're going to have to improvise. Now, sometimes the Bible provides us with a map of life and says, here's a detailed description of how you navigate this particular territory in life. But the Bible's not an exhaustive revelation. It's not a complete revelation. So it doesn't tell us everything we could possibly know about life. Just some things. So sometimes the Bible offers you a map with a detailed description of this is how you do this part of life. But there are lots of aspects of life that are not covered at all in the Bible. And in the absence of a detailed description, what the Bible does then provide us with is a compass or a general direction. So if you take your life in the general direction of generosity, you are moving in the direction of the will of God, regardless of the circumstance. If you take your life in the general direction of integrity, you are moving in the direction of the will of God, regardless of the circumstance, the territory, the lay of the land. If you move your life in the direction of uh, being loving, you are moving your life in the direction of the will of God. You get the idea? So the Bible, when it doesn't provide us with a detailed description, gives us a general direction. And we can move our lives in the direction of God's will if we follow that direction. Now, the only thing better than a map and a compass is a guide, <laughs> a personal presence, someone who knows the lay of the land like the back of his or her hand. Like if I dropped you in the middle of the outback and I said to you, you've got three weeks to make your way back to Perth. You can have a map, a compass or a guide. <laughs> Which would you take? Like I'm talking like a bush ranger who's lived in the backside of the outback for the last 35 years and who knows every um, uh, detail of the outback and who knows you know, where to find food and what bugs you can eat and can't eat and what leaves you can use for toilet paper and what leaves you can't use for toilet paper and where to find water and how to find water. Would you rather have a map, a compass or a guide like that? I'd, have to, I'd take the guide every time, right? And that is what the personal presence of the Holy Spirit is in our lives, a guide, a constant guide who 24-7 is available to you to offer wisdom, direction, instruction, guidance, discernment, understanding, everything you and I need to improvise our way through this reality of life in the 21st century. Thank God for the power of God. Thank God for His personal presence in our lives. And we should expect it because it's part of our heritage. And you know what? If you don't expect it, you're not going to experience it. Because so much of what we experience of God is determined by our expectations of God. In, in Acts chapter 19, Paul travels down to a place called Ephesus. He finds a group of, of Jesus' followers and he says to them, Have you received the Holy Spirit? They say to him, We didn't even know there was such a thing as the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, well, not to worry. Let me explain. He explains it to them. It enters their expectation and then it becomes their experience. But they hadn't experienced it because they didn't expect it because they didn't even know about it. So if we build this into our expectation, it becomes our experience. 
Because you can, you can exercise faith for what you know to be the will of God. Faith begins where the will of God is known. And so when you know that it's God's will for you to experience His sovereign supernatural power in the form of His personal presence, you know that to be the will of God. You can exercise faith for that. You can, you can shape your expectation for that. And then your expectation becomes your experience, right? So real people experiencing real power. And then thirdly and finally, the last thing that I see in the pages of Scripture is real change. Real change. Real transformation. Lives being turned kind of inside out and upside down. And I love that idea. That when we see this first century church committing to following Jesus and, 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 and loving Him, People have their lives deeply and profoundly changed. Bodies get healed. People who suffered prejudice and racism have their hearts opened and become inclusive and loving and accepting. Relationships get reconciled. People find meaning and purpose. People who are on the fringes, kind of marginalized and outcast, find inclusion and belonging. We're talking about real change, real change. And that ought to sit in the framework of our expectation as well. We should expect God to change lives. And so if I was to sum up today what it is I think Acts is inviting us to do, it's, it's to expect real people to experience real power and to enjoy real change. That, I believe, friends, is our heritage. That is what God is inviting us into as the church. And I'll finish with this, this final thought. You know, um, there's a wonderful statement in Acts chapter 2, and I've no doubt that you've probably covered this portion of Scripture already because it's just so central to the book. And, and towards the end of Acts chapter 42, it says, um, And all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer and to fellowship, to gathering, to what Dave has called the, the common things that unite them. Things like prayer and worship and fellowship and the sacraments. And, and what I love about that statement is the opening few words. Because Luke tells us, who's penning this, this book, he says, all the believers, all the believers, not some of the believers, not just the believers who are training for ministry, not the believers who are serving on the board, not the most mature believers or long-standing believers. He says, all the believers, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, etc., etc., now, how many of you know I cannot devote you and you cannot devote me? I can't devote Dave and Dave can't devote me. You can't devote Dave and Dave can't devote you. Every single one of us have got to make a decision about who and what we will be devoted to. And, and we can devote ourselves to lots of things. We devote ourselves to the beloved West Coast Eagles who are going to need a lot of help this season. Oh, Lord Jesus. We devote ourselves to the V8 supercars. I saw a picture the other day on, on social media of this uh, group of football fans, NFL football fans. They were at a game. It was snowing. I mean, literally, the, the stands were covered in snow. They were in these big, thick jackets with hoodies on. They were covered in snow, and they were sitting on the sideline watching this football game. I thought, that's devotion, my goodness. Right? But you've got to ask yourself the question, what am I devoting myself to? And am I devoted, as devoted to Jesus and His people, 
as I am to my football, to my spouse, to my future, to my career? Am I devoted to Jesus and His people? Because the key to experiencing this reality, real people knowing real power, knowing real change, is devotion. All the believers devoted themselves. And so I want to just encourage you this morning to open your heart to that invitation from the Spirit of God. That challenge, that question. Is there any part of you that's withheld? Any part of you that, that hasn't been devoted to Jesus and His cause, Jesus and His kingdom, Jesus and His people? Is there any, any part of you you're holding back? And just allow God by His Holy Spirit to draw you tenderly and lovingly into, this, into the place of full devotion. Because full devotion is the path to life. For you individually and for us corporately. Full devotion is the pathway to power. Full devotion is the pathway to deep, lasting, real transformation and change. Full devotion. And that's what Jesus is calling us to this morning. Now I'm going to invite you to stand up on your feet. And uh, the band are going to lead us this morning. And what I want us to do is I want us to sing that song, Pour It Out. And I want us to sing it together this morning as a prayer. Right? This is our supplication. This is our petition. This is our call to the Spirit of God in response to what He is saying to us through His Word today by the Spirit. This is our response to say, God, would You pour out Your Spirit on us? And would You grant us the grace to be fully submitted and surrendered to You. And so why don't you just bow your heads, close your eyes. I'm going to pray and then the band are going to lead us into the song. And as we sing, let's sing with one heart. Let's sing with one mind. Let's sing with, with unity and with conviction. And let's make this our supplication this morning. Father, we thank You so much for the gift of this time and this space. We thank You for the gift of one another. Thank You that You have gathered us here together today by Your Spirit. We're not here by coincidence. This is not a chance. This is not an accident. We're gathered together today because we love you, because we want to honor you, and because we need you. And so we come humbly before your throne of grace, and with one heart and with one mind, we make this our prayer this morning, God. Will you come and pour yourself out on us, we pray in Jesus' name. Let's sing together. Amen.